This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. So, welcome to another episode of Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. I am Andrew Smith, and I am usually known as Caleb Castro. What are you known as the rest of the time? I can't say so, uh, but uh, yeah. We'll leave it there. Mystery. Ooh. I am known by many names, most of which my mother calls me. We've been talking in previous episodes about the manner of special revelation and looking at chapter 5 of the wonderful works of God. Basically, how do we get special revelation? We looked at miracles. We looked at prophecy. We looked at how the Holy Spirit has inspired the authorship of Scripture. Uh, Basically, the process of special revelation. What we are moving on to now in chapter 6, beginning on page 57 of the Wonderful Works of God, is the content of special revelation. We've basically gone from the how of special revelation to the what. What is special revelation? What is in special revelation right and we want to remember from last time as well that from the manner of special revelation we recall that god uh uses through general revelation through creation through created things the unfolding of special revelation so he he's he's making himself known in history throughout history more and more so so by the time we get to here in chapter six with the content of special revelation you know, this is where we get the language of, uh, you know, God is revealing himself in a saving way in this history of redemption. He's establishing who he is with his chosen people. He's making himself known according to his salvific purposes. Right, and he gets right down to business here at the beginning of this chapter, going clear back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. He also, though, before he does that, He makes a note here, not only are we talking about the content of special revelation, but in looking at its content, we also will see its purpose coming out. And then he begins to look at Genesis. Now, he makes this statement on page 57, special revelation did not begin with Abraham, it set in immediately after the fall. So think back to the garden, think to fallen Adam, fallen humanity in Adam. God immediately at that point enters into special revelation in the giving of the Proto-Evangelion, the covenant of grace, the promise to the woman that her seed will crush the head of the serpent. Bavink doesn't really go into that here, but that's what's in his mind in the beginning of special revelation after the fall. Back when he was talking about the, I believe, value of general revelation, he starts tracing through what happened with man after the fall. You know, God had uh, made himself known in the garden to Adam in a certain uh, special way. God spoke to Adam. He, He entered into a covenant relationship with him which Adam broke. But after the fall, God gives the promise of salvation, the promise to save this covenant of grace. He shares this plan of salvation with Adam through the promise of the seed of the woman, a coming savior who will contend with the 
seed of the serpent, what you can call this kingdom of man, this kingdom of darkness. And throughout the period leading up to Abraham, you see that humanity develops on two lines. You know, those who are uh, children of the promise, those who continue to believe in the promise of the seed spoken to Adam, and then those who have a knowledge of God, but bit by bit, it's becoming more and more seared, uh, and they, they start giving way to superstition and idolatries. And this finds its way up into the flood, even, uh, where things got so bad, God goes and destroys the wicked humanity. But he spares the line of Noah. He spares Noah and his family, including one particular, his son Shem. And so we once again have a situation where God has hit reset on humanity. There is now, once again, only one family on the earth. And that family has the true knowledge of God. But again, beginning immediately after the flood, even with the sin of Ham, there is decline, there is falling away, there is apostasy in the descendants of Noah away from knowledge of the true God, that wickedness and that vice sort of culminating at the Tower of Babel in which man purposes to build a tower to invade heaven, as we have spoken about before. So from there, God scatters the people all over the earth. Different languages, different cultures begin to form. So even in the line of Shem, which was the chosen line, there's idolatry, there's decline, there's falling away. So moving on into the top of page 58, Bavink talks about the covenant of nature that was made with Noah. Now remember, God had entered into a covenant with Noah this covenant of common grace to basically preserve the world, to preserve humanity, to preserve the natural order so that redemption can come. But this is once again at risk. There is great apostasy going on. And so this time God intervenes differently rather than a cataclysmic destruction of man. God instead, um, as we see Bob Inc. here say, sets up a covenant with one person and in that person with one people. And so by way of that covenant, he can pursue his promise and fulfill it. So basically what is happening is rather than destroy the earth, destroy all of humanity again, basically God enters into covenant with one man, with one people that will come through this man, and this will be his covenant people. And the purpose for this, Bob Inc. says, this temporary segregation of a people becomes the means to a permanent unification with all mankind. So for this era, for this time, God's people is going to take on a familial and eventually national character, but this is not a permanent intention. This is just the means of executing the plan of redemption, whereby eventually every tribe, tongue, and nation will be once again brought back to God through redemption in Christ. God's plan had never failed since the garden. You have in previous episodes of Bobcast uh, where we've spoken of how the people of God starts off with, after the fall, the promise is given to one little family, uh, to husband and wife, Adam and Eve, their children, and it's passed along family to family, uh, along through the lines uh, into the time of Noah. And by the time you get to this promise to Abraham, it will encapsulate Abraham's clan. It will encapsulate his household, the servants, his relatives, such as Lot. You have this great 
plan of salvation that, as Andrew just said, includes more and more people, so much to the point that it'll include an entire nation and then many tribes, tongues, and nations. And this was God's promise to Abraham when he told him to look at the stars above and if you can count them, so great your descendants will be. He obviously had a lot of physical descendants. You know, great nations came from him. But also the spiritual descendants, which includes even the present church. It includes us, those who are in Christ. We are children of Abraham. We are the covenant descendants of Abraham. Oh, and, and very much so. Where it's keeping the original purpose and design of man uh, to glorify God. In the garden, uh, Adam is even given that commission to fill the earth, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And so this is how it's coming about after the fall. Now, before diving deeper into this unfolding of Old Testament special revelation, Bavink does take a moment on page 58 to address some critics, to address some skeptics. He talks about those who are trying to discount the patriarchal period as having any historical value. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, did they even exist? Were they just myths? Were they just heroes? Like those celebrated in other mythologies. Or, you know, the history of religion school that tries to say that the religion of Israel emerged from paganism and was some modification of paganism. Basically, any attempt to deny the importance or uniqueness of this period, and yet as Christians, as people who believe in God's word, this period and the people within it are are vital. They are necessary for understanding the rest of the unfolding of redemption. Not only is Bob Inc. arguing for the history of Abraham and his descendants, but also the unity of Israel's religion, as many have tried to attack that as well. He raises the very important point at the top of page 59 that Moses, when he goes to Egypt to attempt to obtain freedom for the people, he appears in the name of a God that those people know. If he had showed up in the name of just any old God, they wouldn't receive him. They wouldn't understand him. They wouldn't accept him. But he appeared in the name of the God that they knew, the God that had been passed down to them from their forefathers. So basically, Bavink has made his case for the importance of the patriarchal period. This is significant for where he's going in this unfolding of special revelation. If you think about it as Reformed people, this is where we get so much of our covenant theology, this covenant with Abraham. If this is just a myth, we have serious problems in dealing with redemptive history and understanding our salvation. So in this dealing with Abraham... We need to recognize that this is an economy of grace. This covenant is based on grace. It is not based on works. It is not based on merit. So if you look at the top of page 60, Bavink begins to unpack this relationship between God and Abraham. He says, The thing that stands in the foreground of that history is this, not what Abraham knows about God and does for God, but what God gives to Abraham, we see this grace, we see this unmerited favor apart from works. And then he goes on to list several attributes of this promise of this covenant. He says, first, it is God who seeks Abraham out and calls him and leads him to Canaan. 
So remember, Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was off away among a pagan people, part of the decline, part of the moving away from God. And God seeks him out there and leads him to a land. He tells him, go forth from your country, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And then Boving says here, second, it is he, God, who promises that he will be a God to him and to his seed. That is the promise of the covenant of grace all throughout from here on up to the very end in in Revelation 21, God at the end saying that he will be God to his people even there. So this is the unifying principle of the covenant of grace. I will be God, you will be my people. And then third, God promises Abraham that all expectations to the contrary, he will have a posterity. Abraham by this point is an old man His wife is barren, which was thought to be a cursed thing, a horrible thing in this age. And she, too, was old. I mean, they were both past what was viewed as the standard child-rearing age. And yet God promises Abraham that there will be posterity, there will be children, there will be an inheritance for them. And then fourth, God says that in his posterity, Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is what we talked about earlier. There's this temporary segregation, this temporary setting apart of a people and of a nation. But eventually that culminates in Christ with a global church, a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then fifth and finally, God draws up this promise in the pledge of a covenant, seals it with the sign of circumcision, and after Abraham's trial of faith, that being the not sacrificing of Isaac, but at least the willingness to do so, confirms it with an oath. So we have here this content of the covenant with Abraham, these elements that make it up, this covenant of grace. You have this resounding theme in in scripture then that has emerged from this point, from this inauguration of this covenant relationship with Abraham. God binding himself uh, in promise as I will be your God and you shall be my people. This shows that the, the problem of mankind at its core, the problem that is laid out for us in scripture is man's need of relationship. Man is in need of communion in fellowship. There's a broken sense of relationship that has to be uh, restored, a broken sense of my relationship with myself in understanding my existence, understanding my conduct. There is broken sense of relationship with others, how we are to interact, how are we to serve and regard others, but first and foremost, broken relationship with God and, and our, our purpose and our design. So here what's really going on is the revealing of who we are relative to the God who's made us and a restoration of our sense of purpose and existence. And we begin to see this unpacked on the second paragraph on page 60. After talking about this core promise, I will be thy God and the God of thy people, he begins to unpack this issue of law and gospel. He says, not law, but gospel, not demands, but promise. That is the core of Revelation. Now we will, as we work through this chapter, talk a lot more about law. It makes up a very important issue um, in dealing with the unfolding of special revelation. But Bavink is at the outset here telling us that the gospel, that redemption in Christ is central. That is the ultimate reality. That is the main idea that must be kept in view. Well, and with that, 
you know, Abraham is going and hearing the word that uh, the Lord is speaking to him. He is going and uh, hearing this this promise. And I mean, Abraham responds through faith, right. through a simple faith. Abraham trusts the word of the Lord. We have this verified in uh, uh, Bob Inglis there, even Hebrews 11, in the roll call of those who acted in faith. Abraham certainly at times goes and deters and tries to take things into his own hand, but it does not change that the substance, the very basic truth that the Lord has promised. Bovink says here, for a promise cannot become ours except by faith, and faith expresses itself in righteous conduct. So he's laying out at the beginning the relationship between faith and obedience, and this is obviously an issue on which no small amount of ink has been spilled or controversy has ensued in the church throughout all ages but even today is what is the relationship between faith and obedience many would try to say that you need to obey in some way to merit your salvation basically there's an attempt to reverse this that you must obey your way into faith or you must obey your way into right standing with god and yet what we're seeing here is that faith comes first faith comes and then is worked out Um, there is obedience and gratitude for the deliverance just as we confess even now in our reform confessions like the heidelberg catechism guilt grace gratitude the same principle was at work in the saints of the old testament with abraham and then We'll even see a little later, even with Moses and the Exodus and the deliverance of the people from Egypt. Perhaps uh, another way we could we could say it too of of, of uh, one of the quintessential issues regarding the relationship between faith and obedience is what what is a work? Are we considering works in the sense of you know merit or ethics? Is it merely morality or moral and right conduct and actions, or are we talking about earning one's way, like paying off a credit card in order to be debt free? We'll get into this a little bit more in clarifying it, but you know, morality is uh, not necessarily bad. Ethics is not necessarily bad, but do we want to turn the entirety of one's religion or one's faith, do we want to turn it into nothing but ethics, nothing but right in proper conduct? That, that's what all the other religions of the world give. And that's precisely the problem. Wanting to do something ourselves and reduce it down to uh, the things we do and to an ethic. Right. And here, here we're clearly seeing by God in the first place going and revealing himself and uh, in, in lowering himself to Abraham and entering into fellowship. The Christian faith, or even in this sense, a, a right relationship with God, a, a true and proper religion that we were designed for, is one that comes externally from us, one that is initiated by God and not us, one where salvation must be external and not where we are working. Right. Our religion is not an ethic, it's a faith. I think our catechism puts this well in question 91 of the Heidelberg. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, so again, faith comes first, conform to God's law and are done for his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. So those three things, done out of true faith, that faith which comes from God, that faith which comes from external to us, and then conform to God's law. We'll get back to that here in a little bit. And then done for his glory. Because here's the thing, if we're doing right things as an ethic, if we're doing it as a, a salvation by works, as every other religion in the world seeks to give us, 
We're not doing them for God's glory. We're doing them to obtain something for ourselves. Exactly. You know, on that uh, third paragraph, that second sentence on page 60, I think uh, this is also the same point that Bob Inc. is getting at here while he says... Uh, While the nations of the earth are walking in their own ways and are developing what was given them in general revelation, a creative act of God called a people into being out of Abraham. People already by general revelation have a sense of, hey, there there is, you know, some kind of pattern of morality. There is uh, ethic. There is uh, things like community. Uh, and there's even a sense of the divine, a sense of, oh, there's a God we have to worship or a pantheon of gods we have to worship and please. But here God is calling a people of his own choice. He's going and setting aside a people out of fallen humanity. And these people, he says, like Abraham, have to live by faith. Uh, And a little bit further down towards the end of the paragraph on that page, he says, it's God who gives and fulfills the promise, though. Everything has to be uh, come down to God's action. So having laid out this background of Abraham and the covenant of grace of the role of faith, of the nature of the covenant people, Bavink now on page 61 turns to the next major covenant event, the next major epic of redemptive history, which is he turns to Mount Sinai, he turns to Moses, he turns to the giving of the law, and works through that in light of what we have seen with Abraham. He begins right away by saying that the promise remains the content of all succeeding revelations of God in the Old Testament. It is elaborated, of course, and developed. And this promise also remains the core and essence of the religion of Israel. So even though there's a change, even though there is the coming of law at Mount Sinai, The promise is still that which undergirds all of it. The promise is at the center. The promise is the substance, even of this dispensation of law. Dispensation being the word Bob Inc. uses for various reasons. We may not like using that word so much now. But even though there is law, even though there is this addition of a nation, there is this addition of cultic practice surrounding the priesthood, surrounding the temple, all these sort of things, the promise is still at the core, at the essence, as he says, of all of it, of the religion of Israel. You know, and I also want to back up slightly just a little bit there, too, where I think it's interesting of how God is preparing and making a way for the people of Israel, and the proclamation of the law at Sinai. Because even then, uh, God had uh, promised to Abraham that he was going to multiply him. He promised him the land in uh, Genesis 22. But then even when the Hebrew people find themselves uh, in captivity in Egypt, I mean, we we have to think of how how providential this is. Joseph had found himself ending up as a, a resident in Egypt, through means of his brothers, you know, trying to kill him initially and then selling him into slavery. And we're told at the end that what they had purposed for evil uh, in selling off Joseph, God had purposed for good. And God uses Israel's slavery in Egypt for his purposes of goodness. But they, they were slaves in Egypt and God had designed this to bring about a nation. Uh, and this is on the basis of his promise to Abraham. Right, and that's what happens while they're in Egypt. They multiply, they grow from, I mean, a large family, you know, Jacob and his sons, 
and grandchildren and such to an actual nation of people. But they are also enslaved. Joseph is forgotten. They are oppressed. But God remembers them on the basis of his promise to Abraham. This is what you see at the end of Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So at that point, the stage is set. God knows his people, remembers his people, even as they are enslaved in Egypt, and he will now set in motion uh, what he has planned to redeem them. We also think then with the burning bush, when, you know, the Lord tells Moses to go and to proclaim deliverance for the people, Moses asks, you know, who shall I say sent me? You know, what do I say to them? And, and God says, I am who I am. And then he identifies himself as being the God of his forefathers. Say to the Israelites, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he identifies himself in that covenantal manner. And then even later on, when they're preparing to leave Egypt, I mean, what happens before they go to Sinai? They have the Passover. And what is the Passover? It's, it's the covenant meal. God is relating to them and and fellowshipping with them on the basis of the covenant promise to Abraham. And this is the context in which the law is proclaimed to them at Sinai. Bavink begins on page 61, talking about Paul's writing in Galatians and the comparison that is made between the promise to Abraham and a testament, a will, basically something that once confirmed it cannot be annulled. That promise stands. It is immovable. It is inviolable. God will bring his purposes to pass. He will raise up for Abraham descendants, a nation, a people, a seed. And he will act and deliver those people. Now, we're going to need to go ahead and uh, stop there. Uh, We're uh, out of time for this episode. We do hope this has been edifying to you uh, and giving you some things to think about. We'll be signing off for now. Till then, may the totes be with you. Or may the zines be with you. Ah, I see you are of the zines party. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.